What really changed my mindset about meditation was when I started meeting who was meditating. Welcome to The One You Feed. Throughout time, great thinkers have recognized the importance of the thoughts we have. Quotes like, garbage in, garbage out, or you are what you think, ring true. And yet, for many of us, our thoughts don't strengthen or empower us. We tend toward negativity, self-pity, jealousy, or fear. We see what we don't have instead of what we do. We think things that hold us back and dampen our spirit. But it's not just about thinking. Our actions matter. It takes conscious, consistent, and creative effort to make a life worth living. This podcast is about how other people keep themselves moving in the right direction, how they feed their good wolf. Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Thanks for joining us. Our guest today is Tony Stubblebine, CEO and co-founder of Lyft, or as it's now called, Coach.me. Coach.me is an app that helps you achieve any goal, change any habit, or build any expertise. Here's the interview. Hi, Tony. Welcome to the show. Hey, Eric. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm really glad to get you on and talk through some of the concepts that are behind your app, which you're now calling Coach.me, that I know as Lyft, and uh, I'm a longtime Lyft user, so maybe we'll get into that a little bit. So I'd like to start off like we always do with the parable. There's a grandfather who's talking with his grandson, and he says, in life, there are two wolves inside of us. One is a good wolf, which represents things like kindness and bravery and love, and the other is a bad wolf, which represents things like greed and hatred and fear. And the grandson stops and he thinks about it for a second and he looks up at his grandfather and he says, well, grandfather, which one wins? And the grandfather says, the one you feed. So I'd like to start off by asking you how that parable applies to yourself and your life and in the work that you do. Well, I just... I definitely know professionally, like nobody starts a company like mine unless they've seen both sides, unless they've fed both wolves. And I, I think of just my entire career has been has been a search for work that felt more gratifying. And at first, I thought, well, I should take the job that gives me the mo- most money. And then I had that job, but it was it wasn't intellectually satisfying. So I went to find a, a job that I thought was the most interesting. And, but then I found that it wasn't like a particularly well-run company. I didn't feel like my contributions were having any impact. So then I started to work for startups. And I mean, that just even got worse because most startups fail in spectacular fashion. And I thought, well, okay, what if I do it myself? And so I started a company for myself, and my entire thought process for the first three years of running that company was, like, I have to prove that I can make this company a success. And then I got into year four, and it was profitable, and I had a team that was running it on my behalf, and I had 
maybe only a day a, a week of work to really keep it running. And so I got to examine, well, is this what I want to do with the rest of my life? Do I want a life of leisure? It didn't really feel like that was a great workout for me. Do I want to recommit to this first company? No. And so I really like had to then say, well, what is my life's mission? Because I just achieved what I wanted to do, it, do, and it wasn't as gratifying as I hoped. And so for me, the answer was obvious. I've just always been interested in, you know, what is the difference between um, mediocrity and excellence? And I think all of us have a mediocre version of ourselves and all of us have an excellent version of ourselves. And, you know, it's kind of uh, like, Good news, bad news. The the excellent version of yourself doesn't happen accidentally. Yeah, and so tell us a little. So you went on to found um, you went on to found Lyft, which is a uh, which now you call Coach Me, which is really about how do people build good habits and how do they how do they transform their life via the habits that they have? Would that be a an accurate summation? Yeah, we changed our our name just recently for the new year to Coach Dump Me uh, because we wanted to uh, take a really active role in helping people achieve their goals, any goals. And so, uh, you know, probably the best way to describe that, or the way that I like to think of it, is that it's a community of people coaching each other, and people in the community are trying to achieve practically every goal that you've ever heard of. So something really popular like the paleo diet or training for a triathlon, those goals are matched by people who are learning to meditate or, or who, are, who are exploring gratitude uh, practices. So really the full gamut. Yeah, there's, there's a lot out there. Let's talk about some of, the, some of the, the underlying principles that you used when you originally built the application. And let's talk about you know, for lack of a better word, the science of behavior change or of habits. You use something uh, that you refer to a lot called the the FOG behavior model, BMAT. Can we talk through what that is and then how that ties into what you've done at Lyft? Yeah. All right. I'm sorry. I keep calling it the old name. You got to give me some time here. It's only like January 20th and I've got years of calling it the old thing. It's fair. We have a tip jar and, the, and people in the company screw uh, up all the time. So how much do I owe uh, you now? Like $8? <laughs> We'll let you slide. But, um, uh, you know, a name change is tricky that way. Uh, when we started the company, we were doing a lot of research into uh, behavior design, is what we call it, sort of the science of behavior design. And one of the people that I like the most is a professor at Stanford, B.J. Fogg, who runs um, a behavior design uh, lab down at Stanford. And what I liked about him is that he created frameworks for thinking about behavior design that were really simple. And in fact, I took a course from him where part of the course is they teach you how to teach his BMAT model in two minutes or less. And so I like, actually was able to like walk around and teach other people what he had taught me. And I think that's the mark of a good teacher. And his, you know, his realization is that probably one of his biggest or most influential is that when you think, well, why am I not succeeding? Or, or why, especially when you judge someone else and you say, well, why are they not succeeding? The first thing you think is, well, they're not motivated. They're lazy and not motivated. But actually, there's almost always three factors in, at play. 
And a lot of times we're over-focused on motivation. So the three factors would be uh, motivation, yes. Ability, you know, it's sort of like um, you can't floss if you don't own floss, right? That's an ability thing, not a motivation thing. Uh, And then the third, trigger. So if it doesn't occur to you, then you're not going to do it. And, um, and so as you design for uh, an intervention with yourself or with someone else, you kind of evaluate where they are you know, on, that, on that curve. Do they have enough motivation? If they do, then it's an ability issue. And great, exam- like great examples, I would say, are like smoking. Most people know that smoking is unhealthy. And in fact, most people who are smokers, many people who are smokers would want to give it up. Mm-hmm. It's not a motivation issue. It's that smoking is addictive. Right. And so it's actually really hard to give up. On the flip side, uh, your dentist tells you to floss every time you see you go in for a visit. Uh, flossing is trivial. It's super easy. But it's not super fun. It's not super exciting. You might not be really that motivated to be a flosser. And so what your dentist is always trying to do is like actually make a coherent sales pitch for why you should, should floss. Because your dentist has identified that, well, he's handed you free floss every single time you've ever gone in for a visit. So it's not an ability issue. He like, you know, my hygienist actually has me floss in front of her. And, um, uh, and so it's clearly a motivational issue. This, and this is going to be an embarrassing admission, but that regular floss caused me all kinds of trouble. But when they've got that new kind, it's like you, it's a, you know, the little flosser things, I turned yeah. into a flosser overnight. So I think that points to, at least in my case, I needed some help with the ability. Yes. I, I, I imagine most of our listeners and the rest of the world will be like you, which is, yes, anybody can floss. But in my case, there might be, might be we, more to it. it. <laughs> you know, it, it, but it's a great example. Then even I'm a little bit over-focused on motivation when it comes yep. to flossing. And like, we all do that. And, you know, whatever a person's motivation is, you can do more. You can um, often make the habit or the goal easy enough that it'll work with that level of motivation. And, you know, the thing is, we're not trying to rehabilitate criminals here, right? right? We're almost always working with people that have some level level of motivation. Right. Even if that motivation seems seems intermittent. So to take this this model is to say that we need to make sure that we have enough of the motivation, the ability, and then we are reminded to do it or not do it often yeah. enough that we that, that stays front of mind or shows that, up at the right times. It is. You know, when we designed the app, we, we were looking at all three. And so, like, motivation could be coming from the community. They're cheering you on or you're seeing your progress and you're mm-hmm. attached to that progress, right? Ability can come really from, again, the community who are there to answer your questions. Like, what is the best way to do this? What is the easiest way to do this? How do I get started? Um, I'm having this trouble. What do I do about it, right? Like, all of those are questions that trip you up. And uh, then now with the switch to Coach Me, we actually have personal coaches who you can hire for $15 a week who are like dedicated to giving you that information and helping you make your goal as easy to achieve as possible. And that's an ability tactic. And then we have reminders. So you set a reminder and it pops up on your phone and you think, oh, right, 
I had decided that I was going to go to the gym mm -hmm. or I had decided that I was going to go somewhere different for lunch that's healthier, right? Like a lot of times you make this decision the day before and then you forget about it. And you just, you know, the issue is don't let yourself forget. Right. So the trigger is that reminder. reminder. Um, I think there's other, it, it, so as far as the app, it's the reminder. I think in other aspects of life, I've heard of triggers being things like, um, leave your shoes by the front door or do these things that make you almost, you know, run into what it is you set out to do. Right. That's a good way of kind of physically designing your space in order to trigger the behavior. Um, and one I do, like I try and drink a fair amount of water during the day. So my actual habit is uh, refill my water bottle when I get to my desk, right? Like that's the actual thing I need to do. Once I've done that, I'm triggered to drink water all day. Yeah. Um, now I have a question for you, if that's okay. Yeah, uh, please. You know, as a longtime user, uh, we built the app initially in this really direct kind of operant conditioning way is that how a psychologist would say there's a positive reinforcement loop, all this other stuff. But as we've talked to people, we see the other side of positive psychology, which is about uh, belief and mindset change. So there's a different Stanford professor, Carol Dweck, mm -hmm. uh, who wrote really influential work on, uh, on how your mindset affects your performance. Yep. So a lot of sort of two two common mindsets, one a growth mindset and another a fixed mindset. Some people believe they were born as smart as they are and other people believe that they worked for it. People who believe that they worked for it act like also see sort of the corollary that they want to be smarter. If they want to be more successful, all they have to do is put in more work. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and they do. And uh, so that's an interesting observation. But my favorite thing about her research was that she found that people were flexible in this mindset. So the, the most famous of the studies was in taking uh, high school kids and taking like a group of them and giving uh, a module, a lesson, like 12 hours total on um, how people achieve goals through work and practice. And the kids who happened to have had that module tested higher for the like remaining four years of high school. Yeah. So sort of like amazing, right? Like you can learn. And it. yeah, can can you learn that mindset? And uh, and that's what I've run into with a lot of my peers in coaching is that they come into it thinking, well, I'm going to be really direct. But then what they find is that their biggest success stories were almost epiphany like, or um, you know, were definitely mindset related. And the one the one story I think about a lot from my from our community sky robin he writes in and he said you know your app is so great he you know it, it helped me pick up a low carb lunch habit now i lost 10 10 pounds so thank you for that and now that i've lost this weight i'm using you guys to learn italian and vietnamese and um because i want to travel the world and i was like well first of all thank you Second of all, what did losing 10 pounds have to do with traveling the world, right? Right. And so it's just he had, he was stuck yeah. because he thought he was stuck. And then he had some small success or, I mean, I wouldn't consider 10 pounds a small success, but right. in the overall like scheme of his life, 
the 10 pounds isn't going to be nearly as important to him as this year of travel. And uh, so just, he had this little success and then became unblocked, thought of himself as a completely different person as traveling the world. And like, what did we have to do with that? Or what did BJ Boggs, BMAT model have to do with that? You know, I, I see how it helped the, the low-carb lunch habit, but I, I think that there's something much more magical that's going on around belief change and surrounding yourself by people who are succeeding. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think that if we have a habit of letting ourselves down in building habits, right, which I certainly have, a, you know, it points in my life, a long history of that. I'm going to do this and I do it for a day, a week, two days, whatever. And then I quit. And then a period later I go, I'm going to do this. And then I start and then I quit. Um, that takes a toll on, it really does put, it, it tends to put us more into that fixed mindset. Like, well, look, I've tried this and it didn't work. Oh, I tried this and it didn't work. So I must just be the kind of person that can't do it or that I don't have the willpower. And I think the, the power of successfully building a habit, at least for me at different points, has been the belief that, oh, all right, now I can take what I learned. And so not only, A, do I now have a little bit more belief in myself and confidence, now I actually also have some um, experience to draw on, some skill to draw on of like, oh, okay, well, remember when I was trying to lose 10 pounds and I ran into that problem? Okay, now I know what to do with that a little bit more. Yeah, a lot of times I think the failures feel more visible to us. It's almost like all we do is fail, so why bother? Yep. But even though it's, you know, the the flip side, the other way to frame that should be incredibly obvious, right? We're not children anymore. What happened? Right? How did we go from naive, ignorant, like, you know, not that smarter, educated children to adults, right? We learned something along the way. So clearly, we're capable of change. And, um, but I think we get caught up in seeing all the ways that, you know, that we have have failed. Well, what I love about both, you know, Carol's work, and we're actually, we have Carol coming on the show in the near future. Really? Which, yeah, which can I'm I, excited about. Can I, can I be like in the background? Sure. I'm a huge fan. Sure. Yeah. Oh, she's wonderful. Um, so I think the combination of, so that mindset, the other piece then is the, the recognition of that there is, that there is a way, there are ways to change your behavior that, um, that work. And, and so I think in a lot of cases, it's that recognition like, oh, I don't have, instead of I'm a failure, I didn't do this. It's an, I don't, I don't have um, that, I don't have that ability yet. You know, I don't have that skill. Yeah. I don't have that knowledge of how to do it. And, and I think that's the other big piece is what I love about that, that model or, and there's, you know, there's other similar ones out there, but that general idea that in order to, the stuff is hard first there's a reason why everybody struggles with it and that there are ways to approach it that are much more effective than others you know when we actually get to coach people we really see how people trip over where they want to be that it's they have this idea that they want to be perfect tomorrow and so they try and be perfect tomorrow yeah. and then they trip up over that that's another good bj fogg concept idea of a tiny habit yeah, I, I actually I sort of feel I, that the way he explains it makes a lot of sense. But I'll preface this by saying I find it almost un-American in that <laughs> it, it it's uh, so patronizing. Right. But his canonical example 
is that don't start with a flossing habit. Start with a floss one tooth habit. Right. And if you can floss one tooth, then tomorrow you can floss two teeth. And eventually you'll floss your whole mouth. Yep. But if on day one you floss all your teeth and you hate it, then you're not going to come back for day two. And of course it's un-American because, I mean, we're, this is a more is better country. And, uh, and why would we want to do a tiny habit when we want to do, a, you know, when our goal is to do a massive habit. But it's, what it is is about building momentum. And I am more likely to use the word momentum there because yep. everyone wants momentum. Yep. And so the big thing is, can you do this five days in a row? Can you do this 11 days in a row? That's actually when we see the failure rate uh, start to go down usually around day 11 and almost all the goals that we've looked at hard or easy. That's when it starts to get, um, a lot easier for people apparently. Interesting. And, uh, yeah, I do have an example of someone that I worked with. He was right, you know, trying to write his dissertation and he just felt like he was never going to finish his dissertation. And of course, everyone who's ever written a dissertation felt like that way <laughs> at some point. And, um, uh, and I said, well, you know, what are you trying to do? He's like, well, you know, I'm try all I want to be able to do is write for eight hours a day, but I keep procrastinating. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you, I, I can see you laughing there, right? Because that all you want to do is write for eight hours. You know, I'll tell you, actually, um, Stephen King doesn't write for eight hours a day. His productivity system is to write a set number of pages. And the thing that blew my mind is that he finishes his work generally between 1 p.m. and 4 p.m. You know, right. never, never 7 p.m., right? right? And so here's like one of the most prolific authors of all time. His thing is just to write consistently. So anyways, go back to my friend who's trying to write the dissertation. And uh, I say to him, okay, let me just do a little bit, a little exercise. We'll, we'll get to eight hours. I'm, like, I'm not trying to contradict him or start an argument. Like, we'll work our way up there. But let me start with something. How about tomorrow you time yourself? how long does it take you to go from sitting at your desk to writing your first uh, sentence? And just tell me how fast that is, and uh, we'll start with that. So he comes back later that next day, and he says, hey, hey, you know, that was actually really good advice. Rather than procrastinating, I, cha like, I challenged myself, how quickly can I do that? It took him two minutes. And uh, once I got the first sentence on paper, I wrote for two hours. And then I thought, well, this is more than I've written in weeks. So good job. And maybe all I need to do is write for two hours every day. And so like to me, that's the power of momentum. It is that he had this giant idea in his head that had completely paralyzed him. And when he reframed it in terms of, well, let me get a small win tomorrow and build on that, it just transformed him overnight into a productive uh, dissertation writer. I mean, to the point where, you know, weeks later he was telling me, you know, he was writing his dissertation from his cell phone, right? Like, no, no one who procrastinates is capable of writing on their cell phone. Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. 
This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. We talk about some of those things on this show so much. I mean, I, you know, I, I call some of that stuff, one is the all-or-nothing mentality, right? Like, I'm going to write eight hours a day. Or I just don't do it at all. And I, it's so easy to fall into that. Um, and then the other is, you know, my, my saying to myself always is that a little bit of something is better than a lot of nothing. Like, you know, 10 minutes of exercise is far better. You know, 10 minutes of exercise every day is far better than three hours every two weeks. It just, and that's the way I work. That's just, and I think a lot of us are that way. And that, that breaking these things down into these small steps is is so obvious when you think about it, and yet so rarely do most of us do it. It's hard to give ourselves permission to do it. And that's that's a lot of what I see when I see a coach work with someone, is a lot of the big part of the role of the coach is just to give that person permission to start small. Yeah, that's and, a great point. Yeah, and that ends up being really powerful. Um, also, I was thinking uh, the other day about Something I heard Tony Robbins say, he says it in a bunch of different ways, but um, one of his things is that um, an experience is 10 times more powerful than um, an opinion. So like, if you experience success, that's 10 times more powerful than me telling you you could be successful. And I mean, that goes back to the belief change, right? Like theoretically, you know that if you work hard, you can achieve every a lot of things, a lot more than you currently are. But until you actually have a victory under your belt, you don't really believe it. That is so true. So let's change gears just a little bit and talk about uh, a, a favorite subject of mine, which I think is also a favorite subject of yours, which is meditation. And you yes. guys are actually working on a book. But first, let's maybe just for fun, we can talk about uh, how I build a meditation habit, partially using Lyft that, you know, sort of incorporated a lot of these, these different ideas. Um, sure. So, and I'd be, I'd be curious if, cause it sort of ties to so much of what you said. I mean, I've been trying to meditate on and off for a long time. I don't really want to talk about how old I am, but it's been a long time. I got interested in meditation very young and I was very intermittent. You know, I'd meditate and it, part of the problem was just that whole, like, like you said, I would stay, you know, I'm going to sit down and meditate for 45 minutes, which <laughs> like, if you've got a brain mic like mine, that's like going to the horror show. I mean, it's just, yes. it's awful. And so I would do it for two days and be like, all right, you know, I, I give this up. But the thing in Lyft that I loved, the thing that helped me the most was the streak, the number of days in a row. Cause once I got to a certain number of days in a row, it became a, a thing. And I can't tell you how many times that I was like, Oh Christ in heaven. I'd be laying in bed and realize I hadn't done it and be like, Nope, I'm not giving up my, you know, I'm not giving up my 150 days. I'm not giving up my, and that, 
for me, that works. Some pride in that, some game, you know, making a game out of it. But boy, it saved me so many times. I think I'm somewhere around 460 days or something at this point. And I know I'd be nowhere near that if it wasn't just for that, that streak. And I have to say that at one point, I forgot to check in long enough on Lyft that my streak ran out and I had to email your customer service and plead with them to go in and update it so that I could have my little, uh, my, my 300 day flame or whatever it was. Yeah. Well, I'm glad we did it. Um, cause that, that streak is really important and I'm glad to hear that you have a 400 day streak. When you talk about just, first of all, um, a life worth living, right? And I said, like, this company, starting this company was part of, was a statement for how I want to live my life. Just to have you tell me that story, that we played any role, and I mean, honestly, it was 90% you, but that we played yeah. any role in you having a 400-day a meditation streak, that's very gratifying. Yeah. The thing, though, uh, is that we have med- we've watched 85,000 different people try to meditate. Right in, within the app, mm-hmm. and we were able to survey them and find out their stories. And basically, there's two types of stories. There's the st- the person who says, "All I tried to do was meditate for 40 minutes, but I couldn't keep a clear head. So maybe 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 I'm not cut out for meditation. Right? Doesn't work. Meditation doesn't work for me. Yeah. yeah right. And they take it very personal. Yes. Right. Yes. It's like this is my my bad. Right. And uh, and in fact, uh, nobody can meditate for 40 minutes with a completely clear head. People can meditate, uh, but nobody keeps a clear head even for two minutes. Right, or right. as a, a meditation teacher I work with sometimes said is, well, if you could keep a clear head for 40 minutes, we'd take you to the hospital. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like this is not, it's not natural or normal. Right. And so then the other story that we heard is, oh, yeah, you know, I just start for two to five minutes, whatever felt you know, fit into my day, build up a streak, and I got better over time, but it can still be a struggle, uh, but that's okay. And um, you kind of dig into that, and you realize that the struggle, the supposed struggle, is um, just a person judging themselves. That uh, what's actually going on is your mind wanders, and then you bring it back to your point of focus, usually breath. So you're breathing, you're focusing on some point in your breath, and uh, and then you, you realize you're thinking about where what where you're going to get lunch that day, and so then you catch yourself and you bring it back, and we call that like that the two phases there is sort of awareness followed by focus. You become aware that your mind has wandered, and then you refocus on your on your breath. Uh, that's a, a mental push up. Every single time you do that, you become better at becoming aware of what your mind is doing, and you become better at controlling where you focus it. And so, in fact, if your mind never wandered, you wouldn't get to do any push-ups. And and so I think of it as a good thing. Every single time my mind wanders, it's a good thing. But the people that are struggling, I think they got told that meditation is about uh, calm. Right. And uh, actually, in fact, I'm an advisor at a meditation startup called Calm.com. So it's not like it's not a mystery why that idea got put in people's heads. But the thing is, it's not all calm. It's at the end of the meditation, many people feel more calm than they did at the beginning. 
But the, the between A and B, it's not about having a completely clear head. And if you start judging yourself every time your mind wanders, it's going to feel like a struggle. Yeah, that's my story exactly. I mean, that was, I think the combination, the, the three things for me that, that finally clicked were, one, we talked about, I think, tracking it and just making a game out of it. Um, second was just doing a shorter amount. All right, three minutes. I'm going to do three minutes for a few days. And then that, that last one was such a big one because I really did, I look at it now, I'm like, I read so many books about it, and I know they all said this, but it just never sunk in that it wasn't about the experience itself. I thought I should be peaceful while I meditated, and I was not anywhere near peaceful when I meditated, right? I mean, and so I finally realized it's not about that three minutes, 15 minutes, hour, whatever it is. It's about the rest of the time around that. Um mm-hmm. That that's and and that I you know that I, I don't know where I heard it from, but somebody referred to it as like mental hygiene, and I was like, that makes sense, like brushing your teeth, because I'm not brushing my teeth, going like this is awesome, or you know, <laughs> like man, I was right. I was really killed it on the you know with a toothbrush in tonight, right? I just right. do it, and and that was and once I did that, then I actually started to have more of meditation that was enjoyable because I stopped fighting it, but boy, it took me, I mean. Like I said, I tried this on and off for a long time before I figured those things out, and it it all changed. I think the other thing that's important in that is that this idea, like every time we come back to our breath or we come back to whatever our anchor is, we get better, is absolutely true, except that some days you're, you feel far worse than you ever did before. Like it's just, it's not a linear thing. It's not like each day I'm getting, my focus grows every day. It's some days you're just all over the place and some days, and just that's fine. Yeah, I, you know, I've never seen this be taught successfully, except through having a guided meditation teacher. And that guide can be recorded. Um, you know, we have guides on Coach.me. Uh, certainly, I learned originally through the Headspace app, That's Advisor good. at Calm. I've seen it in person. It's basically when you start to judge yourself in a human voice, voice, it has to be a voice. It can't just be an article or something you read. It has to be an actual voice who feels present with you. Says, you know what? That's okay, right? It's like actually a lot of times when you listen to a guided meditation, like the teacher is just every like thirty seconds is, is saying, "Did your mind just wandered?" Totally normal. Let's bring it back to your breath. Right. And you just need to be reassured uh, because it it's so because you don't know what to expect and you're kind of projecting onto it. Um, I just, I find it is an amazing practice that uh, basically affects every part of your life. Uh, it's calming. It reduces stress. Um, everyone uh, would rather be more productive, more present. Um, and, you know, that's trained by being aware of what's distracting in your head and being able to point your focus where it needs to go. I think what really um, changed my mindset about meditation was when I started meeting who was meditating, right? So you know, my parents were married by their Tai Chi teacher. You know, I was like born in California and like it could not be a more hippie situation. Right. And so I, I always thought meditation was well, you know, from their generation. I was just like, well, yeah, that's something my parents would have done, you know, 
when they, you know, in the seventies. And I, you know, it just kind of has this little bit of a spiritual uh, connotation for mm-hmm. me that I would, didn't, I didn't think that's what I was looking for. But then I started meeting really successful entrepreneurs and who were um, not particularly spiritual. They just felt like they had a job to do and it was better if their mind was uh, more under their control. And then I started researching it and I realized that professional athletes were meditating. And then I did more research and I realized that hedge fund managers were meditating. And you actually, I came to think about it in a completely different way that uh, meditation is something that you can do for purely practical benefit, right? I was in a hospital last year, not for myself, but visiting someone. And I walked by this room and it's a meditation room. I'm like, oh, so this is part of the pain management strategy for this hospital is to teach people how to meditate. And that's not about spirituality. It's a, that's a very pragmatic concern. And, you know, so as telling this story to uh, a meditation teacher, actually, his name is Will Kabat-Zinn. And if you recognize the last name, it, yeah. you should. It's John Kabat-Zinn's son. Okay. And John Kabat-Zinn is the, you know, sort of the, you know, one of the founders of American mindfulness. And so Will Kabat-Zinn, great meditation teacher and, you know, been in this his whole life. I was telling him about, about that we wanted to write a book and we wanted to call it the strongest mind in the room, just because I wanted to get as far away from the spiritual aspects as possible. And, uh, he, he pauses for a second and he goes, well, that sounds like the dark side. And then, but this is what I love. And this is how you know that he's a meditator rather than immediately trying to argue with me. He goes, why do I think that? And he just started like yeah. he caught himself and he goes, why do I think that? And he just started kind of saying, well, let me share with you. And he starts, you know, talking out loud. And I thought, well, here's a guy that recognized he had a reaction. That's awareness. And then he was able to point his control to something, um, something constructive. He actually told us a really interesting story about um, a parallel debate in the mindfulness community Uh, is it okay to teach uh, mindfulness to the military? Which I think is a a great way to frame it. It's like half of, you know, on one side of the debate, you have people in the mindfulness community that's just like, why would we want to train more efficient killers? And uh, then you have the other half of the debate that's like, well, they're already efficient killers. What we want them to be is to be mindful and to be aware and to think, well, maybe there's another way that I can do this. And, you know, so, of course, it is actually going on. Um, and that's sort of I feel that uh, if you train someone for practical reasons, they'll often come to some, some higher good along the way. And the practical reasons are just for entry point to teaching meditation. Yeah, that's such an interesting debate on so many levels, um, you know, because mindfulness certainly at least originated within a broader philosophical teaching, you know, Buddhism. And so is, is 
that you know that debate is if you strip it out from that does it still what meaning does it have and and is it are people using you know this wonderful thing for for bad purposes and but i think it's the way i tend to think about it ultimately is it's like any other technology right the genie's kind of out of the bottle you you can't you can't put technology back in the bottle it's a question of all right how can we talk about it discuss it and frame it in positive ways cuz there's no there's no going back with it now right buddhism can't take it back it's gone i mean it's out there it, it's a it's kind of a it's the it, the debate now is okay what do we you know what do we do with that and what do individuals want to do with that you know what is it that you want to teach or carry on but from a cultural perspective i think the horses horses left the barn well but this goes right to the heart of like you know the title of this podcast and this is so uh you know once you become once you have awareness you become aware of both worlds and you realize that, you know, that one of them is more fulfilling. And I think people with awareness tend to gravitate towards being better versions of themselves. Yeah. It's actually, I mean, I know Will Kabat-Zinn shares that view because he told me a story about, you know, I know him because he teaches meditation uh, twice a week, I think, at a startup in the same building as me, a startup called medium.com, which is a blogging platform. Yeah. And uh, he, and so he was invited in because the CEO meditates and wanted to teach it to everyone else because he thought they would be better workers. And Will was like, yeah, I could see how this would be good for productivity, but I feel like I should warn you. You know, people might become more aware and then realize that working in tech isn't their calling. Like, you might have people right. quit because of this. And, uh, and I was like, oh, that's an interesting point. But you know, I'll risk it. Like, I'll, yeah. you know, I'll just make sure that we have a mission-driven company. Anyways, I think that's it. You know, it's like, certainly someone could work at a startup for selfish reasons. It's exciting. You can make money. You know, there's prestige if you live in the Bay Area. But, um, but you know, it just, like, meditation doesn't make you more of that. It makes you less of that. Yeah, and and I think it's like anything else. It's it's rare that at least I, at least I know it's rare that I approach anything with uh, purely good or purely bad motive. There's almost always some blend in there of like, right. yeah, I want to meditate because of this, but it all you know. I mean, it's it, it's just hard to. I don't I don't know that I believe in completely pure motivation from anybody. Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. So tell me, what is it about meditation that you think are the, the biggest benefits? I mean, the one you just named, um, you know, when you were talking with, um, what was it, Will? Yeah, when you were talking with Will, is probably the one, when people ask me what I think the biggest benefit is, it's exactly that thing, is that there seems to be just a little bit more space from when I have some stimulus that I have a response and it's not even that response isn't even necessarily outward, right? Because it's, but it's like, I have a stimulus. There's, 
either either there's a little bit more space or there's a quick thought and then I go, wait, do I really believe that? Do I like, you know, which is just great because it helps to disrupt these habitual thought patterns that certainly in my case have been very destructive at points. Exactly. I mean, if you've ever been to a therapist or a relationship therapist, one of the great things they can do is they can point out patterns in your life. Right. But that's not sufficient because <laughs> when those patterns come up, you're, you don't notice them. That's you're not in your patterns. therapist's office at that time. Right. Like someone has to point you out. I mean, that goes back to BJ Fogg and triggering, right? And it's sort of like that a little bit of space where you have trained yourself how to be aware of your thoughts and then how to shift them somewhere is what allows you to then, after knowing a pattern, then you can do something about it. Um, I just I think about that those two things. I mean, there's basically three legs to meditation as I experience it. And you know, I probably there's meditation gurus who experience something completely different. There's talk of the ultimate bliss, all sorts of stuff way beyond where right. what I got as a beginner. Yep. But as a beginner. There's three things that happen really quickly. You train awareness, you train um, control of focus, and you train more calm. But, I mean, it, overall, I'm calmer when I'm meditating. But everyone, everyone, I think, focuses on the calm without focusing on what it would mean if you had uh, you know, complete awareness of what's going on in your head. Because I think you know, we don't, we don't face that often how, um, how out of control we are, right? There's another book that I like, uh, Thinking Fast and Slow, that sort of that talks about two different modes of thought. One is very instinctual. It's what is actually happening most of the time. And then the other is, um, and, that, and that mode is very fast. That's that you're, you make rapid, fast decisions there. The other is very slow and effortful, but it's what we think of as thought. It's the rational part of your brain. Mm -hmm. And if you try, you can turn it on, but mostly it's off. Um, and, uh, like being able to have awareness of like, Oh, right. My like irrational lizard brain is taking me this direction. That's not actually what I want to do. Let me turn on my rational brain for a second and switch yep. gears, right? That comes up in parenting, it comes up in work, comes up in relationships, friendships, it comes up, um, I got yelled at rightfully, so on, um, on the street. Like, you know, I bike home sometimes, <laughs> and I, I like trying to weave through a crosswalk that had a bunch of people. It's like, it's either I'm weaving through cars to make this turn or weaving through people. And this woman yelled at me, and I was like, like part of me was like, don't you dare yell at me. And then, then part of me was like, oh, you know what I should actually say is, thank you for saying something. You're right. And right. she yelled and walked away before I had a chance. But I was like this close to being able to say that because I have enough awareness now. I mean, not the Will Cabot Zen level, right? But enough that I was like, well, I was having a defensive reaction, but I'm actually capable of a really uh, generous reaction there, even there. And... Uh, you know, that second person is who I want to be. And that, that is exactly it. You know, what triggers you um, to behave in a way that you don't want to behave? For me, you know, it's like eating things that I don't want to eat or, you know, staying in bed too long or be getting angry for no good reason. Uh, I just, I have a lot more control of that because I built up a meditation practice. 
Yeah, exactly. That awareness is I that I was doing an interview right before this and we were talking about awareness. Like if you don't have that, all the rest of this stuff is just you're just not going to do you can't do anything with it cuz you don't know what you're there there's nothing there's no I love that analogy you just made of like being, you know, with your therapist and I've been in those situations where somebody will point out something to me and it's so it hits me I'm like that is so freaking obvious and I don't think about it again for 2 weeks until they you know like it's just it's not it's not there for me in my day-to-day life. I know it but I can't I, I intellectually know it, but I'm in no way incorporating it in my life. And I think that that really helps. Um, we I just looked at the clock and we are at like way over normal time, which this I feel is what happens. I feel like I could do this all day. So but I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna honor my at least only double the normal time of the show. But I wanna finish with one thing that you talk about that I think is an interesting idea and I just wanna talk about it, which is the idea of cognitive budget. And I was joking earlier about how mine is gone for the day. So what is cognitive budget? Well it's the idea that uh, you have a certain number of decisions to make in the day. And uh, and you actually have control over where you spend those decisions. And so a decision is not like, uh, you know, what car do I buy? I mean, that's certainly a decision. But it's also, what, what pants do I put on? What shirt do I put on? Or do I even uh, put on pants? That's a, exactly. That's, that could be if, another if one. If you work from home, <laughs> and uh, which I've had that period in my life. Or you're and, a streaker. Yeah, well... Um, Let's move on. I look forward to meeting uh, your audience. (laughs) uh, And actually, it's an idea that I heard the opposite way. There was a really good article in the New York Times about decision fatigue. And it was explaining how people um, stopped being able to make rational decisions at the point at which they became fatigued. And, you know, like I'm always trying to reframe something in the positive. So decision fatigue is an excuse, Right. Oh, well, like I'm not a good parent when I get home because I used up all my decisions at work. Right. But the flip side of it is just you could decide how to spend your decisions differently. And the example, I mean, since I spend a lot of time with entrepreneurs and especially out here in tech, people have this irrational love of Steve Jobs. The, the example I use is, you know, he wore a black turtleneck every day you know, for basically, you know, a long time at the end of his life. And what that meant is that when he got up and got dressed, he just reached it into a pile of black turtlenecks and put on a black turtleneck, no decision necessary. When I get up, I look at the weather, I think about, I look at my calendar, who am I meeting? Am I going to be uh, like on a podcast interview where I'm visible? Am I going to be meeting people outside of the company? Like, what, what is it that I should wear? And so I basically would probably leave the house 50 decisions behind where Steve Jobs would have left the house. And so, you know, he wanted to spend those 50 decisions at work. And uh, certainly I would rather spend my 50 decisions at work or with my friends or on exercise or with my, you know, with my spouse. Like, all I would rather spend it all somewhere else than on getting dressed. And once I realized that, I just became a lot more regimented about things that didn't matter that much, right? Like, I got a lot more uh, pairs of the same type of socks. Like, why am I looking in a sock drawer trying to make a decision? Right. Right? Just, like, get, you know, like, I'm going to wear socks. I know that. And um, same, I just, like, a lot of things in the morning are about saving myself for later 
later in the day. And I thought that was a really powerful way then to look at habits because people would ask me sometimes, what are the habits of really successful people? And if you think about it in terms of cognitive budget, the answer is any habit is the habit of a successful person because that's something that saves yourself to be fully present on the things that matter. So for example, if I have a habit of going to the gym and on Tuesdays, I know that I'm going to do this workout routine. I'm not having to spend decisions debating whether I go to the gym, which exercise routine I'm going to do. So that's a, that's a savings on the cognitive budget. Yeah, we, we call that negotiation sometimes. Okay. Like you're negotiating with yourself. Should I go to the gym today? Uh-huh. What should I work on? Should I do weights? I don't feel like doing weights, but I, I'm supposed to do weights, right? And so like each, the outcome of each negotiation is a decision. And you waste a lot of your energy there where absolutely, if you have a consistent gym routine that you're, it, first of all, it'll hold up, it'll hold when you're, you are fatigued mm-hmm. and people who go to the gym later in the day are at risk because yeah. they're, they get tired. Yep. Um, and also it won't spend down the rest of your day. Uh, so, and a lot of us like, kind of refuse to plan uh, and we Maybe, you know, in order to preserve some option value, like, well, maybe, uh, you know, I'll have more energy in the afternoon, so I won't go to the gym this morning. But what we're really doing is, you know, spending a lot of our cognitive budget because we can't hold ourselves to anything and everything ends up getting negotiated. And it's not that you want to live a really boring life. It's you just want the boring parts of your life to be boring. Or another Tony Robbins quote, I... I like the other day, he said, you know, a lot of us major in, in minor things, yeah, yeah. right? And I was like, I love that. Absolutely. Like, why am I fussing over my socks? Like, I'm, I'm running a company. Like, what, <laughs> how does that compare? Yeah, exactly. Does negotiation, do you guys, is that, does that go into your habit framework? Because we just talked about it in the context of preserving cognitive budget, but it sounds like it's a, it could be a pretty key part into staying on habits too. How do you how do you go into saying these things are, I'm not negotiating these things. Is that, is it simply that you just say to yourself, this is non-negotiable or, or where does that fit into the, to the building the habit phase? I mean, you have the experience of having a streak and so your streak is non-negotiable, right? Like you yeah. are going to meditate and I, I don't think it doesn't sound like you negotiate very much on whether you should meditate. No. I bet you negotiate on how long. And when. Yeah, yeah, I do. I mean, and, and so, yeah, and when I'm in, you know, there's a little negotiation when I'm nearly asleep and I realize that I haven't, I, but it's not much. And I have sort of a fallback plan that says, okay, when that happens, here's what I'm going to do. It's, I'm not going to go, you know, sit in a, you know, on a cushion upstairs for, you know, an hour, but I'm going to do something. I've got some things that I fall back on, but yeah, you're right that I try not to negotiate when becomes a problem for me because my, my schedule is kind of chaotic. But when I can get it routine, it's so much better to just know when it's going to happen. Yeah, I, we have a lot in the app about making your life easier and helping you pre-decide, right? So it's, um, you know, convert a big goal into a routine. Like that's a pre-decision. Mm-hmm. I might do this every day or at least a couple of days a week. I might do it this many days a week. I might set a reminder for this time on these days. Um, uh, even um, as we add in more levels of coaching, one level is a daily plan. So it's actually a coach has written for you today, do this. So you just, you know, 
a user approached on me is already in the habit of opening the app, and then it just tells them, oh, this is how many push-ups I'm going to do today. Or, right? And, um, and then the last level of coaching is that uh, is actually a personal coach. And um, you know, that's a, just another example of someone who's helping you uh, not negotiate, right? Is that um, I, I tell the coaches, you know, the new, new coaches, it's okay if you don't feel smart. What you want is for the, your, the person being coached to feel smart. So like a question like, what days were you planning to go to the gym this week? It doesn't make the coach feel smart, but it actually is a really eye-opening question for most people who are like, well, I hadn't decided at all. Right. right? And um, those sorts of basic uh, planning questions are about pre-deciding so you're not having to negotiate in the moment. Yep, that's such a good approach. And I like that idea of people buy into stuff that they have a uh, say in coming up with or thinking up versus, you know, there's that some of us, I won't name anybody, might sometimes uh, resist authority. So if it feels like that in certain cases. But I'm just saying is the interesting thing to watch so many people be coached is actually there's um, a type of person that wants to be told what to do and that wants to do it. And then there's a different type of person who hates to be told what to do and definitely won't do it. And you just have to coach um, each Figure person out what differently. You're with, yeah. and, and that's actually partly why we've ended up with so much, so many humans, like why it's a community, is because software is not that great at being that flexible. But a human can figure that out uh, pretty quickly and say, well, okay, this is a person that just wants to do it on their own and I'll advise them, which is how I am. Like I always tell my coaches right away, I don't want to plan. I don't want you to tell me what to do. I want to tell you what I did, ask you questions and get your feedback. And for me, that's very valuable. That's because I'm uncoachable and that's how I ended up being <laughs> the CEO. Yep, I can, I can relate. Well, thank you so much. This has been, uh, like I said, I could probably do this for another hour, but this has been really fun. Um, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for the the app. I'm a I'm a big fan. And uh, should we tell people where they can get it? Yes, please. I'll I'll have it linked in the show notes. But go ahead. Definitely. So the URL, the website is coach.me. That's not a .com or anything. It's coach.me. And then you can download the app also from. Uh, the Google Play Store for Android and from the Apple Store for the iPhone. So you can use it on the iPhone, on Android or the web. You know, basically everyone should be able to use it. Yep. And it's there's there's a lot in it. I probably use ten percent of what's in it, but yeah. but it's uh it's been really effective for me. So thanks again, Tony. All right. Thank you so much for having me and good luck everyone. Yes, take care. You can learn more about Tony Stubblebein and this podcast at oneufeed.net slash TS.